Before we turn our attention to the reading of Scripture, I've been asked to say a word about the book of the month for April, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. How many, I'm just curious, how many read that book? Okay, all the rest of you need to read this book. It's a great, great story. The author, by her own admission, was a young, radical, left-wing, feminist, liberal, postmodern lesbian. Did you understand that? A young, radical, left-wing, feminist, postmodern lesbian who was also a tenured professor in the English department at Syracuse University. She was doing book for a res- uh, she was doing research for a book on the religious right and particularly on what she calls their hermeneutic of hatred aimed against the gay and lesbian community when she published an article in the newspaper on the promise keepers and their gender politics. After that letter appeared in the paper, she received a letter back. She received a lot of letters back, and she put them in two stacks, fan mail and hate mail. She got a letter from Pastor Ken Smith of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. Ken and his wife in their 70s invited Rosaria into their home to discuss questions about the Bible, theology, and worldviews. She couldn't shake the letter that she got from Pastor Ken. She didn't know which stack to put it in. And in the letter, he invited her to call him. She did. And they invited her to come to discuss these things over dinner in their home. She did that. And uh, that led to a great friendship that over the next two years was instrumental in her conversion. Rosaria says this word, conversion, is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face-to-face with the living God. This book is the intriguing, challenging, and fascinating story of that train wreck when God turned her world upside down with the gospel. At the heart of the means God used to draw her to himself was the openness and warmth and love of the pastor's home, and the ready acceptance of their church family when she slowly began to attend two years after meeting with Pastor Ken and his wife. It's a great story. I will warn you ahead of time, you've got to plow through chapter 2. Chapter 2 is the lecture she gave to the incoming graduate students in 1999, three months after she was converted. The lecture she had prepared prior to a conversion went in the trash. And you've got to work through that lecture, but you'll be well rewarded if you keep going. So don't get bogged down in Chapter 2. It's a great, great story, and I, I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy back in the book nook, and you'll be blessed as you read. Now, let's read from the best book. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. If you have one of these Bibles from the card in the back, it's on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Thank you, Tim. Well, I'm, if you're a guest here, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors, and I have the privilege of taking us a little bit further in the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to wrap up chapter 1. Um, if you're new, we've been going verse by verse, kind of section by section through this letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to take up verses 15 through 23 in chapter 1. And it's all about the subject of prayer. And now, I don't think I, I think it's ironic that I should have to teach on the subject of prayer this morning, considering that in light of UK's victory over Notre Dame last night, you guys probably prayed more than you have, and more intensely than you have in a long, long time. That was a nail-biter. So, um, but as expected, the cats pulled it out. So um, hopefully the prayers going forward won't just focus on uh, UK's remaining games um, in, the, in the NCAA tournament, but certainly greater and more important things related to knowing God now, prayer is a really a global phenomenon, and it's, it's pretty amazing the fact that you think about that prayer really lies at the heart of what so many people, um, what it means to believe for so many people. I mean, it's, it's, it's in monotheism, monotheistic religions that believe in one God, like Judaism and Christianity and even Islam. I mean, Islam encourages their people to pray five times a day. Jews were encouraged to pray three times a day. Christians are encouraged to pray without ceasing. And uh, prayer is not, of course, limited to monotheistic religions. Obviously, polytheistic religions around the world, like Buddhism and Hindus, um, include uh, use prayer as well. And then there's even non-religious people. Even non-religious people tend to uh, pray at times. Studies have shown that in secularized countries, prayer continues to be practiced not only by those who have no religious preference, but even by many of those who say they do not believe in God. One 2004 study found that nearly 30% of atheists admitted that they prayed sometimes, and another found that 17% of non-believers in God pray regularly. So this certainly doesn't mean that everyone prays, but it does mean that prayer is a universal, global phenomenon inhabiting all cultures and involving the overwhelming majority of people at some point in their lives. Now, to say that does not imply that even though prayer is a universal phenomenon, that that, is, that does not mean to say that all prayer is exactly the same or that all prayer is true or that all prayer reaches the ears of God. Prayer presents a dizzying variety across the world landscape, but Paul brings it all down to a head here in Ephesians chapter 1 by modeling for us what true prayer is. Because true prayer is founded upon a verbal response of faith to a transcendent true word from God. In other words, true prayer flows out of a true knowledge of God. And true, a true knowledge of God must be rooted in a reliable word from God. 
Prayer is not merely an inward descent to discover that we are one with all things in God, but rather it's rooted in an external reality, an external revelation of who God has revealed himself to be. So our prayers must arise out of our immersion in God's word, in Scripture. Scripture shapes how we are to pray. The goal of prayer is real, personal connection with God. If that's the goal, then the only true way that we're going to get a real personal connection with God is by immersion in the language of the Bible so that we learn how to pray. And that's why prayers are included in Scripture. That's why Jesus taught us to pray this way. And he models for us how to pray, but he also gives us instructions as to what to pray and how to pray. Without immersion in God's words, our prayers may not be merely limited and shallow, but also untethered from reality. We may be responding not to the real God, but to the God we wish we had and the life we wish we liked. In other words, we might be responding not to the real God, but what to but to what we wish God in life were to be like. Indeed, if left to ourselves, our hearts will tend to create a God who doesn't exist. And that's why we should be thankful that we have here in the middle of Ephesians chapter 1, or actually near the end of it, but right at the beginning of this letter, Paul modeling for us what he prays and how he prays and why he prays. And it flows right out of that great section that we've been covering the last three weeks, this this deep theology about what God has done for us in Christ, And that understanding of who God is and what he's done and what he's up to in the world and where the universe is going and all of that leads Paul to prayer. And that teaches us something, doesn't it? That the Christian life is fundamentally, at its most basic and foundational, a life of worship over the word in prayer. That's what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that that's what all all Christianity is, of course, because Paul's got a lot to say about what Christianity is externally in terms of action. But it's fundamentally, as far as a walk with God goes, the knowledge of God being informed by the revelation from God that he has given us, bringing about worship to God and a prayerful response to God. That's what life is like, and that's what prayer is for. God communicates to us through his word what he has done in Christ to save us and redeem us and where the universe is. And the purpose of redemption is headed. And out of that, for that reason, we pray in response to him. And it forms an ongoing communion, an ongoing dialogue between ourselves as a church and as individuals in it to our God. So Paul wants to give us three reasons in this section about why we pray. And I think it's very instructive for us. And I hope and pray even now that as I go into this section that we'll be helped as far as the way we think about prayer. So here's the first reason we pray. Notice in verses 15 and 16, the reason we pray is that we are thankful. The reason we pray is because we are thankful. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you, in my prayers. Paul is very thankful for what God has done for us to save us, but he's also incredibly incredibly thankful for what God has done for others. Specifically, what Paul is thankful as as a leader of the church for what God has done in saving 
the Ephesians. He says, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. I mean, that's the essence of Christianity summed up in a, in a statement. Faith toward Jesus, love toward others. And Paul recognizes that. He hears about that, he says. He got a report of it from these Christians in Ephesus. And what does he do? He immediately takes it to God in thankful prayer. He says, I do not cease to give thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers. And this is very characteristic of the Apostle Paul. This is not something that he would have done only occasionally, but rather that he did continually in all of his letters to all the churches. Just here's a smattering of what he says in other places. Romans chapter 1, verse 8, when he writes to the Romans, what does he say to them first? He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, as he starts that letter to the church at Philippi, again, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine. Same thing to the Colossian church. He says, we give thanks to God always, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray, to, when we pray for you. He says the same thing to the church at Thessalonica when he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. We always thank God constantly, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 3.9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers. And then finally, Philemon chapter or verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. So this was a common thing for the Apostle Paul his whole orientation when he thought about what God was doing in the churches that he was either involved immediately in planting or others that he knew was to offer thanks to God. And that motivated him to pray. That was a reason that he prayed was to offer those thanks to God. One writer says that every time Christians merely remember who they are in Christ and what God has done for them and for others, that great word comes home to us And we will have a heart to pray again and again because we're thankful. We know that we couldn't do those things in and of ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to produce faith and love in us or in others. We know it's the work of God so that when we see it happening and we see God doing that, that thrills our hearts as God's people because that's what we want. As God's people, we want more than anything, Jesus Christ to be trusted and people to be loved. That's our great desire. And so when we see that happening, we are motivated to thank God. And here's the reality. God is at work all around us. We just need to look for it. And when we look for it, what we'll see is God working faith and love in each other as brothers and sisters. And we'll be motivated to thank God for it. I mean, Paul models this for us, right? I mean, think about it. He delights in the influence of Jesus on people's lives. And he's motivated to thank God for that. And no greater example do I think we have in the New Testament than the way Paul interacts with the Corinthians. I mean, you think about a messed up church, right? I mean, he's getting ready to write a letter, reading, writing first to the, to the Corinthians, people, the Christians in Corinth, And he tells them, he's going to tell them all kinds of things. He's going to rebuke them for everything. He's going to rebuke them because they got incest in the church. Man sleeping with his stepmother and the church is doing nothing about it. He's going to write to them because there's division. 
They prefer one leader over another leader, and they've forgotten that Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of the church. They're all messed up with the Lord's Supper. They're getting drunk and showing up at the Lord's Supper and being selfish and forgetting the purpose that Jesus died and the supper that he established. Their abuse of spiritual gifts is horrific. This church is eaten up with selfishness and drunkenness and immorality. And what does he write the very first thing? I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. I mean, are you kidding me, Paul? Are you, are you kidding me? Is, that's, that's fake. That's fake. He's lying. It's not true. I mean, he's just writing that as an as a introductory pleasantry so he can get to the you know, fact he's going to punch him in the throat in a minute. No, that is nothing. It's genuine. Why? Because God has done a genu- genuine work in Corinth. You ought to have seen him before. This was progress. It really was. If you, if you know any background to the, to the city of Corinth at all. And he even writes to them and says that all these things were characteristic of, of their lives. Immorality and, and, and drunkenness and those kinds of things. And he, he reminds them that such were some of, the, such were some of you. And he thanks God for it. He, he knows. He, doesn't, he, he, he has a way of looking at the church through rose-colored glasses. And those, that, that, that color is being stained by the blood of the cross. He has a way of looking at the church through a gospel lens, through the lens of what Jesus has done and is doing. He doesn't look at it through a naive, rose-colored, you know, in the, in the sense that we t- typically use that word. But he looks at it realistically, but he's also aware of what God has done, and it moves him to thank God for it. So thankful people pray. That's the bottom line. Thankful people pray. Unthankful people don't. Anything that God does in our lives or in the lives of anyone else is sheer gift. And when Paul sees what's done in the church at Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth or even here in the, in the letter to the Ephesians, he recognized what, what God has done. And his first response is to give thanks to God for it. So we pray because we have just so very much to be thankful for, don't we, church? We have so very much to be thankful for. I mean, just everything that we've considered the last few weeks, just the spiritual blessings alone that we have in Christ, the fact that he chose us before the foundation of the world, the fact that we're holy and blameless before him, the fact that we've been predestined to adoption, the fact that we've had God's grace lavished upon us, that we've been redeemed, forgiven of all of our sins, that the the mystery of his will has been made known to us, that the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ will be achieved and actualized, that we have obtained an inheritance, that we ourselves are God's inheritance, that we are the, we who the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, that we heard the word of truth, that we believed in him, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. All that, all that great news, all those spiritual blessings that have come to us are reasons for ceaseless thanks to God. We never have an occasion for which thank, thank, unth- or thankfulness to God is not called for. And so that's one reason we pray is because we're thankful. Second reason we pray is that others are needful. We pray because we are thankful, but secondly, we pray because others are needful. Notice what Paul says here in verse 17 through 19. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, now, now he's giving us the content of his prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So Paul prays because this church is in need of his prayers. And we pray because others are in need of our prayers. He can't give them what they need. Paul understands the difference between being responsible to someone and being responsible for someone. He is not responsible for what has happened in the church of Ephesus. He was responsible to preach the gospel and pray and love and serve them. But he could not produce the things that he's praying for here in verses 17 through 19. Our deepest needs, and Paul knows this, are spiritual needs. And they can only be supplied by God. Paul recognizes that the Christian growth of his readers is wholly dependent upon the living God who gives generously to his children when they call upon him in prayer. So what does he focus his prayers around? Is he asking God to change their circumstances? Is he asking God to give them specific earthly blessings? All those things are good to pray for, but he focuses on what is most important, that they know God and that they know all that they have in God. That's what he's praying for. He's just worshiped at the beginning of this letter, busting out of the gate with worship, blessing God for all the spiritual blessings that have been given. And now he recognizes that just because I've written this and just because I've worshiped over this doesn't mean you get this. And so he prays it into reality. He prays that what they have, he has just written to them about, about the every spiritual blessing that they have in Christ, that they would come to comprehend and fully appreciate all that they have been given in Christ. So our greatest need in prayer and our greatest priority for prayer is that we would know God better. That's our greatest need. That was Paul's greatest goal. That was Jesus' greatest wish. Paul's greatest goal, Philippians 3.10, that I might know him. That I might know him. Jesus' greatest wish or greatest reminder. This is eternal life, John 17.3, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ. That's how he begins his prayer to the Father. To know that, that, that the people that you have given me might know you, that they might know you, that all my disciples might know you. Here's what Tim Keller writes about that reality, thinking about the priority of knowing God. He writes, consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer. In our natural state, we tend to pray to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Also, ordinarily, our prayers are not varied. They consist usually of petitions. That's asking God for things. Occasionally, some confession, if we've just done something wrong, Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. In short, we have no positive inner desire to pray. We do it only when circumstances force us. Why? We know God is there, but we tend to see him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, he's not become our happiness. We therefore pray to procure things from him and not to know him 
better. And that stings, doesn't it? And uh, it rebukes us and challenges us and reveals to us where our hearts really are. But notice also the privilege that this prayer gives us. It's, it's amazing. It's great. It's wonderful. It pre- he's praying that we will know God and have the eyes of our hearts, verse 18, enlightened. Now, isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it interesting? He's writing to a church, right? Assuming they're full of Christians. And his main prayer for them is that they know God and have an enlightened heart. I mean, isn't that what it means to be a Christian? Don't you have to know God to be a Christian? Yes, of course. But the knowledge of God that you have when you become a Christian is not a sufficient knowledge of God. We need to go deeper. We need to know him better. And so Paul says they need to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. That is, our hearts tend to get dark. The beauty of spiritual things tends to become dull. The things that are most important and most real in the world, namely all that Paul is describing in chapter 1 related to all that God is doing in Christ, tends to become ho-hum. And what Paul is saying is, look, when that is happening, we got to know God better. We have lost sight of who God is. And therefore he prays that the Ephesians and us, that we will have the eyes of our hearts enlightened and the spirit of wisdom and revelation given to us so that we might know God better. He does not assume, Paul that is, that just because everything is theirs in Christ and they have every spiritual blessing, that they don't need to grow in their experience of those blessings. And that's the difference. They have every spiritual blessing. He tells them everything that they have right here is true, but that doesn't mean that you experience it the way you need to and that it has the effect on its life that it needs to. And that's why we pray. We pray because we need to press down the reality of the gospel more deeply into us. And we need to have God open our eyes again and again and again to who he is, to what he's doing, to his glory and greatness. Because so often that we're going to get, it's going to get, we're going to get dull. We're going to get dead. We're going to feel lifeless. And that's why God has given us a lifeline through prayer, which connects us to him and is the means by which he is willing to make himself known to us again and again and again. So Paul wants us to more deeply understand God's saving plan and learn to live in light of this. And we are in need of knowing three more things. He spells it out here. He gives them, he has a general prayer in verses 17 that we might know God better. And then verse 18, he talks about, okay, the means through that which that's going to happen is God giving us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, which has reference to enlightening the eyes of our heart, helping us know and understand who God is. That as we read the, as we read the book, as we understand the text, as we dive into scripture, that mere reading is not going to cut it. Mere hearing, mere hearing me preach, that's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it. It won't cut it. What, what has to happen is God blessing, God intervening, God helping, God assisting. And that's why we pray. And he says three things here in this passage. First, that we might know. What does he want us to know? The hope to which he has called you, the hope of his calling. So he prays that we might know God better specifically by knowing the hope of his calling. Now, what's that a reference to? Now, our, our, his call, our calling is what, God, what, what Paul has already explained in this passage. 
in this, in, uh, sorry, in the early part of the chapter. Our calling refers to how to God's choice of us in eternity and how that gets secured in history. So our call is how the gospel comes to us with power. He wants us to appreciate the power that God had to demonstrate to save us. Okay? He wants us to understand how we got saved. What God did to do that. It wasn't merely a decision or a prayer, walking a aisle, signing a card, getting baptized. There was a massive move of heaven to get you into the kingdom. It required the power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead to raise you from the dead. And that's what he's going to pray that we understand. And he wants you to know and appreciate that God had to bend all the resources of heaven to get you there. And wants you to understand the hope that that should birth in you. The, the hope that, that if he did this for me, if he called me in this way, surely I will be kept and saved. So it's meant to give us security. That's what Paul wants us. He wants them to be totally persuaded that the God who has called them is the God who will keep them. That the, that, 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 that calling that we have received when God called us through the gospel to faith and repentance to Jesus Christ that that calling produces a hope in us. It produces the hope of salvation, the hope of righteousness, the hope of resurrection to an incorrupt, in, an, in an incorruptible body, the hope of eternal life, and the hope of sharing in the glory of God. God's sovereign, saving purpose for us is something God wants, to know, wants us to know and appreciate, not ignore. And so that's why he prays that as a church, they would and we would understand what happened to us when God saved us and rest in the hope that that provides for us. And it's going to take prayer for us to understand it better. Second thing he says is the riches of, of his inheritance. Notice the latter part of verse 18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now we heard a little bit about that inheritance last week. And this is, again, Paul coming back to that and saying, just because I say it, just because I preach it, just because I tell you about it, doesn't mean you don't need to pray about it, right? We need to pray that God will help us understand just how valuable we are to him. That's what it means. He prays that we would understand the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, not the riches of our inheritance, but the riches of his inheritance in us. That is, Paul is praying that we might be enabled to understand the glory and honor and wonder of our privileged status. To understand and reflect upon the spiritual wealth of what it means to belong to God and to be his people. God wants us to fully understand and grasp and experience what we are to him. He wants us to know how deeply he values us and cherishes us as his treasured possession. Paul's prayer is that the Spirit might enable us to appreciate and enjoy and celebrate and marvel at the unfathomable value and love of God for us. We are God's incredibly valuable and glorious inheritance. And Paul prays that the Ephesians will get that and understand that. We are the church 
And the church is the principal means by and through which God now and forever will display the indescribable splendor of his resplendent beauty. We are God's inheritance, the treasured people of his own possession, in whom we will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. Now, how many of you wake up and feel that way? None of us. None of us. I don't. I don't wake up and feel the God of the universe loves me indescribably. And just not just from the head, but at the heart level, experiencing that, knowing that. I mean, we wake up normally, at least I do, a lot of mornings feeling like God is way out there, unconcerned about me. And I better work hard today if anything's going to happen. If it's going to be, it's got to be me. We don't, we don't appreciate that. I don't wake up filled with hope for my future based upon what God has done for me. And you know why? Because I don't pray enough. God has invited, he says, you want to get to know how much I love you? You want to have more hope in your life? Come to me. Let's pray. Doesn't that motivate you to pray? Certainly motivates me to pray. You need to pray more. Church, start praying. No, Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, here's the motivation. You get to know God better. You know what? When you know God better, you know what you're going to experience more? Hope. You know what you're going to experience more? Love. And if you want more hope and more love, God says, let's pray. Come to me. Because I am hope and I am love. He doesn't want you to just know hope and love, though. He wants you to know power. He wants you to know power. And that's what we see in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? He wants us to know hope, love, and power. Because that's what it means to know God. To know God means that our lives are filled with hope, secure in love, and powerful for effectiveness in the world. And we need to know God because we don't have the, we don't have the hope we have, we, we need. We don't have the love we need. And we don't have the power we need. Where do we get that from? Prayer. Because prayer is the means of knowing God. It's not that prayer in and of itself is the hope. Prayer that in and of itself is the love. Prayer that in and of itself is the power. No, prayer is the electrical plug that plugs you in to the power source, namely God himself, through which he will now channel hope, faith, and love to you. So Paul literally is piling up equivalents in this text. He says he wants us to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. He doesn't just say, I want you to know the power. He doesn't, just say, want to say, he doesn't just say, I want you to know the greatness of God's power. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. He wants to convince us that God's power working on our behalf is incomparable and able to bring us the final salvation. He wants us to be convinced of God's power working in our lives. I want to give you an an illustration and an example of how God answers this prayer. God answers this prayer. Did you know that? God answers this prayer every single day, multiple times a day in an ongoing way. Because people are praying, God's people are praying all over this world and they are praying to God and they are getting to know God and God is filling them with hope and God is filling them with love, and God is filling them with power. I want to share with you the story of one of God's daughters 
who one week ago today went home to be with Jesus after a long battle with breast cancer, and she died at the age of 38 and left behind four children and a pastor husband. Her name is Kara Tippetts. If you're interested in reading more about her story, you can check out her blog, MundaneFaithfulness.com. I want to read you a couple excerpts from her obituary. This is what Kara's obituary says after dying one week ago today at the age of 38. Her her well-known blog, Mundane Faithfulness, where she originally posted about motherhood and living in kindness, became a blog about looking for God's grace to show up, even in the hardest, messiest, ugliest places. It was a window into her life of chemo, church planting, spontaneous dance parties in the kitchen with her little, with her littles, that's what she calls her children, her passion for Jason, her husband, her passion for those who don't know Jesus, and her struggle to accept her growing cancer as God's story for her life. Her self-described mundane life appeared anything but mundane to her readers, who inevitably fell in love with her inviting, joyful personality and her love for and trust in Jesus. Readers were attracted to her honesty, her vulnerability, her sense of humor, and simple faith. She never hesitated to share the hard moments, but she always pointed her readers and herself back to Jesus. As the cancer spread, Kara courageously embraced her situation, trusting in a sovereign God. She believed that cancer was not the point, but Jesus was. How she responded and trusted Christ in the midst of this hard circumstance was where she would find grace. Here's what Kara recently wrote. And this, if this doesn't show you what prayer does in the life of God's people to supply hope, faith, and power and love, I don't know what does, but look what God did for her. Kara wrote, My little body has grown tired of battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He still has given me breath and with it, I pray I would live well and fade well. By degrees doing both, living and dying, as I have moments left to live, I get to draw my people close. That's her reference to her family. Kiss them and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my, lo- the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wander over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wandering over his love will cover us all. And it will carry us, carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. She knows the Lord. She knows him. And she knows hope. And she knows love. And she knows power. And other people know it too. This past week, she posted a letter to her readers upon her death. She wrote a letter and she put it on her blog to be posted three days after she died. And this is what she wrote after she, three days after she passed on March 20, on the, on March 25th, she says, it seems impossible that this journey has finally come to an end, but I've done gone and flown away to the land of no more tears. Won't you rejoice with me? My pain is gone. My fears are calmed. I'm in the sovereignly good hands of Jesus. He is my forever enough now. What bliss I'm sure I'm enjoying. It's hard for me to separate my feelings for that place and this. This was a woman who was was filled with power and hope and love. And it's because she prayed and had thousands of other people praying for her. 
And God answered those prayers to give her the knowledge of who he was and to fill her with hope, love, and power. So Paul's prayer is that God would act in such a way that we might more fully grasp and understand the implications of the many spiritual blessings with which God has already blessed us in Christ. And that's what Kara understood more and more as, she, as her dying days got closer and closer and as her breast cancer spread more and more. She got more and more in touch with every spiritual blessing that she already had. We need to pray not so much for what we don't have, but for more of what, an understanding of what we already do have. Paul doesn't assume that simply because we have been so richly blessed that we have no further understa- need for further understanding or growth or application of these truths. And so God says to us, church, this morning, do you want to know my desire for you? Do you want to know the hope to which I have called you? Do you want to know the riches of my glorious inheritance? Do you want to know my indescribable and immeasurable greatness and power towards you? Do you want to live in this hope, rejoice in this love, and rely on this power the way you should? Then let's pray. Let's pray. Here's the third reason, and this is the final one. We have, we pray because we are thankful. We pray because others are needful of our prayers, but we also pray because God is powerful. God is powerful. Paul picks up on the heels of this request that God would fill the Ephesians with immeasurable, the knowledge of his immeasurable greatness and his power by describing what the immeasurable greatness of God's power is. And this, brothers and sisters, is the power that is at work on our behalf every single day of our lives. Notice in verse 20, according to the working of his great power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now I got five minutes and I'm not going to do any justice to that whatsoever, but we're going to treat We're going to try to dip down into it. This is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Think about this. This is the power that he has demonstrated in four distinct ways. First, this is the power, the power that is on, that God wants us to know and experience is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. God's power was manifested in the resurrection of Jesus. He said that he worked in Christ, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead. This power is designed for believers is the same power by which God raised Jesus from the dead. That's a huge encouragement to prayer, a huge encouragement because the power that is available to us is the power that God used to raise his own son from the dead. But not just that power. It was the power that also God used in raising Christ up, not only from the dead, but seating him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is currently enthroned. He is exalted above all power and all authority. To be seated at someone's right hand was to be afforded the highest honor, the highest place of privilege, the highest authority. That means that everything is under the reign of our exalted King Jesus. And so when we pray, we pray to the one who can ultimately do something about it, who has the power to change everything because he rules over everything. Everything is under the reign of our exalted King. And so when we pray, we're praying to the ultimate authority. Thirdly, notice this, he spells it out even more of Jesus, not only his resurrection and his enthronement, but his present rule and dominion over all things. Verse 21, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here's the encouragement. This is a present reality, not merely a future reality. Jesus presently rules over all things and has all things in subjection to him. Here's what one writer said. The brow of Jesus, which was once crowned with thorns, now wears the diadem of universal sovereignty. And that hand, which was once nailed to the cross, now holds in it the scepter of unlimited dominion. He who once laid in the tomb has ascended the throne of an unbounded empire. And therefore, when we pray to him, we are praying to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You're not just talking to some half-baked, half-hearted, false God deity. This is the one who presently has the scepter of the universe in his hand. And so Paul reminds himself and he reminds the believers of that reality that as we come to him in prayer, we don't come to a wimpy peasant Jesus. We come to the king of kings. And notice this king of kings is uniquely preoccupied in this world. Even though he is raised from the dead, seated at God's right hand, ruling presently over all powers and authorities, his main interest is the church. That's his main interest. So this king, it's just, like, it's just like a great president, right? Or a great king. Who has greatest access to this king? Who is he most concerned about? His family. His sons and daughters don't have to go through any of the protocol that any of the other soldiers or citizens of the kingdom have to go through. No, even as he's ruling his kingdom, if he's a benevolent king, he is thinking for his family first. Those whom I love, those whom I care for. And that's the same thing with our king. He is leveraging all of his rule and all of his authority for the benefit of the church. That's what he says in verse 22. He put all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and gave him, gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. See that? He gave Jesus the head of all things, the ruler of all things. He installed him. He enthroned him. He put all things under his dominion in subjection to him. Why? For the church. To the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ's rule over the cosmos is for the benefit of us as his people. So we don't merely come to a king who is uninterested or disengaged or saying, you know what, I got a lot of other things I'm thinking about right now. I mean, I've got rulers and authorities that I'm concerned about. I mean, I'm trying to defeat principalities and powers around here. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've been raised up. I've been enthroned. I mean, your petty requests about knowing me more and hope and, and love, I mean, that's really insignificant. I mean, I, I don't, ain't nobody got time for that. That is not what our king does. Our king says, oh, hold on, my people are praying. Hold on. Hold on. Power to them. Hope to them. Love to them. Sustaining grace for them. That's hair trigger. Hair trigger on that stuff. We have God's ear. And we have the king's ear. And so those of us who struggle, and all of us struggle, with this tendency to live the Christian life in our own power and not by the power of God. I mean, we struggle, don't we? Whether God is really involved in our day-to-day, whether he really cares, whether he really is concerned about the matters of my life. I mean, first of all, by nature, we're rugged Western individualists, right? 
Don't need nobody. I mean, I'm going to make it. But at the same time, we're functional deists when we become Christians a lot of times. We say, God, yeah, he created the world. He saved me, but can't wait till I get to heaven, you know, when all this mess will be worked out. And just devoid of hope, devoid of love, devoid of power. We can develop a victim mentality then and believe we're trapped. There's no way out of this. I can't change. I've been dealt a bad hand in life. You don't understand. Nothing ever works for me. And we just develop the cynicism and pessimism. And it's because we're not prayerful. We don't know God. That's why. If we prayed, if we sought the Lord, God promises, I will give this to you. I will give myself to you. And the good news is that the God who is powerfully at work in the world and does intervene and involve himself in our lives, according to this letter to the Ephesians, we have the power to do all that he is commanding us in this letter and to, and to realize and embrace all that he has done for us in this letter. And it comes through the channel of prayer. It's so simple, isn't it? It really is. It's so simple. This is not by any means a difficult concept to grasp. But I just want you to leave church this morning understanding the privilege that we have being given this gift of prayer. We are, we are given the means by which God promises to let us know him better, to let us experience him more. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this great and glorious letter to the Ephesians, these wonderful promises that you have given us. We thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that even as we're praying together through my leadership, through my voice right now, that we have your ear, that you are attentive to us. And we pray that we might know you better. We pray that as a church, we might understand the hope of your calling. We pray that as a church, we might understand the riches of your glorious inheritance in us. We pray that as a church, we might understand the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. And we pray all this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.